Sterling Silver Premium Meats are high-quality beef cuts, perfectly marbled and graded high-end AAA. Let your culinary mastery shine brighter than ever using Sterling Silver. Visit centennialfoodservice.com for details. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Matt Bazile to Table Talk. Matt is the founder of the Toronto-based street food brand, Fidel Gastros, which within four years went from an underground sandwich pop-up to an internationally recognized food brand. Now, almost a decade later, Matt has a still-growing business of food trucks, food experiences, and a massive catering division. Matt always strives to be different in an industry steeped in tradition. He's also the author of best-selling cookbook, Street Food Diaries and Brunch Life, which was nominated for a Taste Canada Award and a World Gourmand Award. He has also contributed as a food writer to the Huffington Post and Vice, and is a regular guest on programs such as Global Morning and Breakfast Television. The Fidel Gastro's brand celebrated six phenomenal years with their brick and mortar, uh, brick and mortar gastropub Lisa Marie, which was featured on various TV series, including You Gotta Eat Here and Chef in the City. It was also ranked as the ninth best brunch spot in Canada by Open Table Magazine. Today, in addition to growing the Fidel Gastro's brand, Matt collaborates with brands and food personalities over his popular social media and YouTube channels. He also posts original recipes, and hosts cooking series via YouTube, including Chefs in Cars Getting Takeout, Date Night with Grandma, or Yeah, Brunch. So welcome to Matt Bazile to Table Talk. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. It's so crazy. Whenever I hear my bio um, read out loud, I kind of get slightly embarrassed, but then also like, like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that we've done. <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's wild. Because, like, it's been 10 years. It'll be 10 years October. Um, and it was like a blink. Like, I, I, I barely remember it. <laughs> so <it's, laughs> some, sometimes the bios are good because they help jog the memory. But uh, it's just wild sometimes to have that perspective. It's funny that you say that because in interviewing several people over the last while on these podcasts, they've said the same thing, listening to their own bio makes you realize, you know, just how much you actually managed to do. And as you said, it's, it's been a decade, which is a long time, but it does also go very fast when you're so busy, right? It's true. And, uh, you know, I started the company when I was 26, 27. So I was very young when I started. Amazing. And, but it, it's kind of, you're almost just, when you're that young, you're, you're like fearless. You don't know what you're getting into. Had I known what I was going to get into, I maybe would have taken a slightly more conservative approach versus just guns a blazing. Right. Um, but now yet actually just yesterday I turned 37. So it was, uh, it was just very, I don't know, surreal to kind of have people reach out to me yesterday from all different walks of the last 10 years to just say like, Hey, you know what? Thank you for 
for doing what you do. It's been a wild journey. So uh, yeah, it's, it's just really cool to hear that. Well, happy belated birthday. Oh, thank you. Yes, hence the coffee. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why you need the coffee this morning. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's really funny, but anytime I see you either at events or on social media, one thing that comes out loud and clear is that you really make food fun. Like everything you do, it comes across very strongly that you're having fun and that's great. And I think that's why people also get so attracted to it. Um, but let's start with telling me a little bit about, I mean, you know, you just said that it's been a decade and you started this very young, which when you're young, like you said, sometimes you're not really aware of everything that you're getting into. So there's a little bit of naivety there. In terms <laughs> Big time. Of, yeah. But sometimes that's good because it forces you to do things that maybe you'd be too afraid to start if you thought about it too much. But give us a little rundown on what made you get into this business and, and how that all came about. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, my journey into food is very different than I think most people's journey into the, you know, the hospitality industry. Um, I actually grew up um, working in butcher shops and grocery stores as a kid, not because I wanted to do food as a career, but mm -hmm. because I just thought it was, honestly, it was easy. It was something I really liked. Therefore, I could just do it as a part-time job and make money at it. And I was around food all the time. Um, and I remember when I was like starting to work in like butcher shops and like handle, like I, that, I really loved it, but I also knew that it was a temporary holding place in my life until I went to you know, university and got my degree and then sure. did other things. So that's exactly what I did. You know, I, um, I, I went to McMaster for, I got an English degree there. And then, and when I was at McMaster, um, I worked uh, the breakfast shift at the bar. Cause again, super easy stuff. And I was just like, you know, I'm already up early. Why not? Let's see the breakfast shift. Went to uh, Humber College after that, uh, got a postgraduate degree in their advertising and writing program. Um, and then I got uh, an internship at one of the world's largest conglomerates of ad agencies, like right out of school. Then that agency hired me right away. And I'm like 23 at the time. And I was just like, didn't stop. Just, I was like, cool. Like, I'll just keep writing this. Like, this is interesting. Um, and had that job for a year. And then the recession hit in 2008. Uh, and I got laid off and I was like, okay, cool. Like it didn't really phase <laughs> me. I was like, I got a summer break, I guess, but I, I was starting to get a little bored, a little antsy. And I took a, a there was a job opening at, uh, McEwen, Mark McEwen's first, uh, grocery store at the shops at Don Mills. Right. Um, and I was like, you know what? Like I probably could go on unemployment, but I'd rather just be working. And then, mm -hmm. cause I just, I'm not. That's just who I am. Like, I'd rather just be working because I could still be applying for other ad agency jobs at night. I could take freelance jobs like because it's shift work. I can I can make it work. And I did. I made it work uh, for probably about six to eight months. But I remember when I was there, I met Mark. Um, I got to see how he built this incredible brand. And it was the first time in my life where I actually saw the food business as more than just a, like an Italian grocery store, like a, just mm -hmm. a, a neighborhood spot. He was an international brand. And I was immediately intrigued by that because I was like, Hey, I love food and Hey, I love big brands and big ideas, right? Like that's what I've been doing. So that's when I think the seeds of ideas started to 
resonate with me. But in my head, I still felt like I needed to fulfill my duties. So I was, I got a job uh, at a company and I was in their marketing department and it was fine. I did my job and I got, you know, a paycheck every couple of weeks, but I was having a hard time like connecting with the work because uh, I really, it wasn't who I was. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, what do I want to do? I'm like, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like I want to, I want to start my own company. And the only thing I know how to do is cook. So it's going to probably be in the food space. And I built this entire business plan. I took about a year or so. And the original concept was Fidel Gastro's was going to be a sandwich shop. That was the idea. So I built it was clever at the time, right? Like it was funny. It was memorable. Um, And so I I built a business plan. I developed all the things that recipes and all the marketing material. Like I had it down packed, went into the bank, presented it. And they rejected me uh, within the first 38 seconds of talking. Because they were like, they're like, we need to know what assets you own. Uh, We need to know how much money you have in the bank. And I didn't have any. I'm like, what? No, (laughs) none of these things exist. So long story short. I assumed the idea was over and I was just going to go back to my job and just do, and not go back to my job because I hadn't quit, yet, but go back to just working and being like, okay, it was, well, it's that great idea that just never, never came to be. And then one day I was at a party in the beaches here in Toronto. Uh, there's a lot of musicians there. They had a full DJ booth, a full bar. There was like a dance area. People were freestyling. Like it was quite a lively party. And everyone was going to order food in. They were going to order pizza. And then the guys knew, though, I was such a big cook. They were like, well, Matt, why don't we just give you a little bit of money, go through our fridge, cook whatever you want, if you want, and we'll go from there. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Sure. So I'm getting stuff ready, assuming no one's paying attention to me. And then, But it's an open concept kitchen. And then all of a sudden, like two people crowd around and four people crowd around and then 10 people crowd around. Next thing you know, the, the kitchen was now another part of the party, just like the bar and the and the DJ booth. So I was like, I did this thing at this party accidentally. And I had a moment where I was like, maybe this is the business. Like maybe this is what how I launch. You know, if I can't get a space, I'm just gonna do like food parties. We were calling them pop-ups at the time. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I went home, I rewrote my business plan. I was able to afford to launch with money that I had already accumulated. Um, so like, great. I don't have to get a loan. I can just do this on my own. And I did it. That's exactly what happened. Like I, I, I quit my job. They thought I was crazy. They were like, we'll keep you a seat when you're ready to come home. You know, I was like, I'm not coming back. I'm like, I, I think I've got this. And I don't know why I just, the thought of failing just wasn't really an option. Um, and I had very supportive people in my life. I'll be, you know, my parents, uh, my, some of my best friends, my girlfriend at the time, and who's still my girlfriend today. And it was just like, yeah, failing wasn't an option. I, and again, it goes back to your whole thing of like, you don't know what you don't know. So you can just power right through it. That's exactly what I did. And I had a quite a trial by fire as far as like my first run at it. Cause then you start to learn what it takes to actually run a food company. So I was, I needed a commercial kitchen. I didn't have a commercial kitchen. So I was help my other friend open up a butcher shop and I would give him free labor during the day so that at night I could use his shop to prep. And then I'd go do my, like I was, when people say like I work 20 hour days, I was working 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And I did this for probably the first six months of my business. And it was like, 
I got a, like, this is great. I got a lot of attention really quickly because people just saw me everywhere. People were convinced I was a twin, actually. Like the, the <laughs> theories that were being thrown around were actually wild. Like one person said that I was at, cause they knew Mark and I were close. Some people were saying that like I was, uh, I was actually being like financed by Mark. And it was actually like a side oh, project really? that he was doing. Yeah. Wow. Like, and I, and I, I took offense to that. Not because listen, I love chef Mark McEwen with all my heart. I've learned so much from him and I consider him a very, uh, a great mentor and a great friend. And he's always been there for me. I only took offense to because I was like, well, shit. I mean, I'm just working my ass off. Over doing here. And else, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, so that's the only reason when I took offense. Up. But then other people were like, oh, maybe I think he's got a twin because there's no, like I was literally everywhere all the time. But those face-to-face events uh, were really what helped me connect with people and establish a community. And I have no doubt in my mind that is how I was able to accelerate my career because I got to meet everyone I was serving food to. People knew who I was, what my approach, and, and honestly, like, thank God for that because I was still learning how to cook professionally as we were going. Like I am a way better chef today than I was 10 years ago. That's like, incredible. You, can't even, you can't even compare the two things. So the fact that people were willing to part with their money and knowing that my food was still a work in progress is like bewildering to me. Like I am blown away by that. So um, from there, you know, I started, I, I outgrew the, the kitchen setup. So I got another kitchen, then we got our food truck. And then when I was approached to do a reality television show about, about my life, <laughs> that, that, that's when things really started to take off. Because obviously now I had this machine of television and media just always around me. Uh, we launched Lisa Marie, which again, I wasn't prepared for that, but then got a, a very, very fast uh, training session on how to open a restaurant. And again, that was, that came with its own ups and downs. But I think one, one thing I always tell people is we left on our terms six years later. And the, the product that we had when we left was, again, way better than the product that we had when we came. So I, I did. I checked all the boxes that I needed to professionally and personally when with that restaurant. Uh, you know, we did two seasons of the show, two cookbooks. And then, you know, we transitioned to more catering and events with our food truck after we sold Lisa Marie. A lot of brand partnerships and collaborations, a lot more TV stuff, but more, more one-off than, than that. And, and to be honest, now I look at everything like a project. Um, the project aspect of food lets me see that there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. A project could have a five-year mm-hmm. trajectory or, or a five-week trajectory, but I just need to see it in terms of how do we start it? How do we grow it? How do we, how do we end it? And that's been my uh, my strategy uh going forward so if someone comes to me with a project like that sounds like a forever thing (laughs) and uh i have no interest in doing that and i think having that approach i'll be honest like really did help during covid because covid was like a series of projects every (laughs) every week and um you know and i'm sure we'll get about the bricks and mortar part of it either right well, I mean, I did because we still had our, our, our kitchen that is a, you know, uh, has walls and doors and equipment and stuff like that, but everything was manageable. Everything was scaled back. Everything was uh, different. Um, and, and having, being a much smaller company at the time of COVID, it allowed me to make adjustments and changes on the fly based on what the world was saying and what, mm-hmm. how people were feeling really. 
What a great education. And I mean, and to get into this without any formal education in cooking and really fueled more than anything by a love of what you were doing of food and, and, and connections and everything else. But in terms of those um, first few years, I mean, did you ever, like you, you talk about projects, did you ever think that you wanted to do more than just projects in terms of having, uh, you know, the food truck, how did that come out? Because do you consider that a project as well? Very fair. You know, the project analogy actually didn't come up in my vocabulary until I sold the restaurant right. because that's, that was like the, people were like, well, what are you doing next? That's always the thing in food. What's exactly. next? What's next? What's next? What's next? I'm like, Oh my God, I'm tired. <laughs> I'll tell you what's next. I'm going to take a week off. Like, you know, um, like that's what I kept telling people. I'm like, I'm just going to take a break. That's what's next. Like I was, I was burnt out after Lisa Marie because that was a, a commitment just like every other year before that was a commitment. You know, the, the food truck, gen, like the reason why I got into a food truck was here I am doing these events off of tables. Right. And the food truck felt like the graduation from that. Right. So it was still not as expensive as a restaurant. However, very expensive still. Um, but it allowed me to still interact with people at the window. It was still very fun. It was still unique at the time. Now trucks are a little different. The model is totally different. But at the time, it was just a natural progression and graduation from doing the, the events off of tables. The restaurant, I wasn't even planning to open a restaurant. I was just looking for a place that I could prep all my food and also park my food truck and not be so far away from all these places that I was doing events. Interesting. And literally like that was it. We just happened to see a place that had a restaurant attached to it. A friend of mine was like, Oh, I know a guy He's trying to sell his restaurant. You should check it out. And that's how, so we signed a lease without even knowing what Lisa Marie, what the space was going to be <laughs> like. Who does that? Like as a first time restaurant owner, we're going to take one of the most challenging uh, industries on the, one of the most challenging parts of the city being West Queen West. And, and we're going to just give it a whirl. Like who does that? You know, and nobody, and stopped. And it worked. Nobody, <laughs> nobody stopped me though. No one said, what are you doing? <laughs> like, so um, yeah, I guess it did work. It depends what you define as, has worked really like, um, there was a lot of work within that work. And the, like I said, the first year I was first two years, I was really not happy with the restaurant. It didn't feel like a reflection of who I was. It felt like it was trying to be something that, it, that people wanted us to be it felt like because I had to hire more traditional restaurant people to help me run it. Mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of bad advice from them. Like I, I was doing things that they would like, they learn from other places but i'm like yeah but here's the thing we've always been built off of being different from different. other places so yeah so when i finally took a little bit more this sounds ridiculous you'd be like well you think you'd always be in control of your own restaurant but it's like well no not if you're also running a food truck and a catering company and we were filming a tv show at the exact same time that's and, crazy and writing a cookbook at the exact same time this is all within the first two years of running my company like this was a lot right so i was like okay i pulled the reins a bit on the restaurant. I started to cook food that I love more. I started to find, and I took a lot more time in hiring people. I think before I just looked at hiring as like, Oh, I know friends that will take this job. Biggest mistake ever. Never hire friends, Mixing hire friends, people you yeah. don't know. Yeah. 
worst mistake ever. You know, you should always hire people you don't know. Um, and yeah, like it just took time. And I always tell people, the, you know, I was lucky that we were so busy in the beginning at the restaurant specifically that I was able to afford to make mistakes and then learn from them. Because so, so often in our industry, you make catastrophic mistakes, but you're also not bringing in revenue That's and right. therefore you're closed in six you're months. not going to last. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the food trucks now, how many have you got? Honestly, one. People also so think just okay. like we've had, this is now our second food truck, but we've never had more than one mm-hmm. truck operating at one time. And okay. currently I would say every year we like, we used to do all the festivals and public services every year. We start dial that back just a little bit, 10 or 15%. We would bring it back a bit to allow for our catering business to kind of take over because at the end of the day, it might not be glamorous, but I want to know when I, when I wake up in the morning, I know I'm already making our money, you know, versus the festival days, like talk about a risk. You Crazy. pay a fortune to be there. You pay a fortune for electricity. You pay a fortune for labor. You pay a fortune for food because they're giving you these insane numbers. Like you're selling 2,000, 3,000 portions a day. So you've invested. You have to now have a killer weekend just make to make it all up and then profit like five or 10%, you know? So festivals actually under the current like structure from a food company make zero sense if you're trying to get by because all it takes is one day of rain right. to completely change that. Yeah. I used to wake up in the morning swearing at the clouds. Like I was like, <laughs> no, no, you know what I mean? Like, my God, seven, like I would freak out if I thought, if I thought rain was coming, I would go into deep A scary proposition, yeah. So I'm never again. But you were one of the first people on, on board with the food trucks. And like you said now, they've changed somewhat over the last decade since you started. What's the biggest change with the food trucks from when you launched it till now, where now there's a lot more competition for you, obviously. Sure. But how has the, the whole concept evolved during that time? Well, I think it's like every food trend. There's the early adapters and then there's the, the, the late majority, right? So when we, you know, yeah, I, I take honor in being one of them, but there was a handful of us. There was about maybe 10 of us in the beginning mm-hmm. in Toronto that, that all launched at the same time. And now people had already heard of me, even though my food truck came a little bit at the end of that first 10, I was already doing the pop-ups before. Right. So it's like, I had been around since those earlier trucks but I didn't actually have my truck in the game until like, you know, six months later. Um, but the policy and the legality around food trucks was very different then too. Like we were constantly going to city hall because it was just a gray area. That, nobody yeah. knew, right? Like nobody knew what was going on. They had these ancient archaic policies from the seventies that everyone was grandfathered in. So people would always ask, well, like, well, how come there's a hot dog truck in front of the convention center, but you guys can't go there. Like it's a different, different bag of tricks altogether. So um, you know, as the policies started to loosen and the opportunities got bigger, you just, and, and the popularity, um, became, you know, at its peak, people thought it was an easy, like, I don't want to generalize, but the consensus I got when people would email me mm-hmm. asking me how, how to launch a food truck, the consensus was it was easy money and right. there's no such thing especially in food as easy money. So I would give people the, the 
the harsh reality, I would just be brutally honest. And I would say, listen, if you've never even worked a truck, do a festival weekend and then tell me if you're, if you still want to do it, because if you haven't worked 60 hours in three days in the blistering summer, it's a lot. So now our model is simple. It is purely, we've done years of brand building and relationship building. Now it's only used for catering. That's it. So you've changed really the model of it totally. I, I will not do any more public services. I know that makes some people really upset, but it's true. But it, we've, we've created other opportunities that you can still get our food from a public setting. But right. the food truck specifically will never do festivals again and will never do public services again. It'll, it is purely for catering and events. And obviously during the pandemic, you haven't been able to do any of that, right? With the food trucks at all, or were you able to, to use it to some degree? We were able to use it to some degree. We were, were very fortunate that we, we looked at what, uh, what industries were still able to operate and how could the food truck be of service to them. So construction and production were two industries that were still going. Now, the services themselves look very different. Um, and there's a lot of things that we started to incorporate into those services that I actually never want to lose. I want to keep the, like, like, you know, things like never having more than 10 people at the truck at a given time, um, you know, just th things like that, like where I thought were, were great. So, you know, having people pre-order ahead of time for a catering. So that way we know exactly, you know, oh, yeah. it just keeps you. Yeah. So it's just organizational stuff that I would keep going. So that was one aspect of COVID catering. Um, the corporate kind of kits combined with virtual demonstration was a really big part of it. And then we started uh, of, of like our COVID like offering. And then we were also doing like, um, like packaged food. So like I made my own bacon, I made my own chicken wings, I made my own pastrami. We would slice it, we would backpack it, we'd sell it. Uh, we would find like multiple different like online resources to sell the stuff. So for me, it was like, how can I make as few things as possible, but sell it in as many different ways as possible? Like that was the, the goal. And we were able to do it with on a very skeleton crew. Sometimes it meant a lot of work. Sometimes it meant, you know what, we're going to have a, a chill week. And uh, again, I'm just, uh, I'm so fortunate that I was able to stay busy. The only time we closed was the first two months when COVID first hit. So May and April, we, did, we came back May 2-4 weekend and we have not stopped working since then. And I'm talking of 2020. Um, and it's been all systems go since then it's ebbed and flow as I was telling you earlier when we were talking, you know, offline that because of the structure of the company, there were certain parts of the year that were very catering focused and very event focused, mm -hmm. albeit in a different way. And then there were other times a year where it was more like consulting, creative development and brand partnership focus. So, it, you know, COVID allowed me to show that a, and I've always been saying this, multiple revenue streams are fundamental in this industry. You cannot just be doing one thing uh, because should something happen, like a pandemic, uh, you'll notice you're gone, right? So yeah. multiple revenue streams was like fundamental to our survival. And the second thing was, you know, I finally started to see the investment of my personality and my personal energy into the brand and into the product starting to pay off because I realized that I was the asset that people wanted to work with, not so much our food. And that was the, the other component where 
people knew that if they were working with us, that I was, I was hands-on and I was involved with it. And I'm not saying I'm special. I'm just saying there was that, I think people were looking for that extra touch, you know, uh, right now. So that, that, those two things I would say were uh, paramount during COVID. And, and the catering component, obviously you're talking, um, maybe define a little bit what your catering entails. Is it more corporate? Is it more parties? What's the mix? Are we talking now or are we talking pre-COVID? Well, I guess both, you know, during COVID, so before- obviously changed, but... Sure. So let's assume COVID never happened, which is the thing. Before that, we were doing everything from 300-person galas to 10-person little curated dinners. We did a lot of weddings. I was doing about 20 weddings a year. And I'm not talking the late-night snack. I'm talking the full-fledged wedding. The whole thing. Um, yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. Like, I, I love it. I, I, I live for it, right? I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and people are often shocked that they're like, oh, it's like, no, no, no. I'm a, like, I own a restaurant too. And I, I've cooked around the world. I've had great opportunities. I'm like, this is a food truck. Yes. But it's not a, like, you're not just getting hot dogs and fries. Nothing, nothing wrong with hot dogs and fries. I absolutely <laughs> love hot dogs and fries. But, um, but what we're going to do is we're going to give you a slightly more elevated version of what you expect from a food truck at your wedding. So, and then we were doing a lot of corporate stuff where the truck would either just park up uh, at people's offices and employees would come down. We would do like appreciation things. Or sometimes we would just send platters of food to offices. So like my goal was, was like, what define our buckets of catering? How do we bring our style food to those buckets? If any of those styles, if any of those buckets prevented a profitability in our food or B compromised the quality of our food, we would then either modify it or eliminate. And that was it. COVID has just been a a more amplified or uh, dialed in version of that where it was like, okay, Now, what do we do? So it's like, (laughs) you know, making prepared meals and having dinners for two ready for people instead of 200, you know, Um, going up and doing socially distanced barbecues where there was um, waves of people coming to the table to graze, you know, (sighs) weddings that were everything from I've done. I've done a four person wedding now. I've done a 10 person wedding. I've done a 50 person wedding. I've done it like so it required. uh, like the two words that I used when COVID first hit was flexibility and patience, right? Like everyone needed to be a little bit more flexible. That means us, that means our clients, that means our staff, everyone involved. Um, and everyone needed to be a little bit more patient because whatever you were used to before doesn't really count right now. Whatever you were paying before doesn't really count right now. We're under very different circumstances and everyone just needs to know uh, that there's been an impact. So flexibility and patience were two words that I would constantly kind of use in, in communicating with either other cooks or like I said, with our, with our amazing clients um, just across the board. So Matt, because you don't have, um, you know, your typical restaurant where you're doing the catering from, I mean, how does that impact on the number of people that you hire um, and your staff? Do you have a core group of people that work with you regularly or do you call as needed, you know, on an as needed basis? What's, what's that like? Yeah. So great question. Um, Again, if this wasn't COVID, yes, we would have had a small core group and then added to that group as on an as-need basis. And there's a lot of companies that I've worked with where they do are required uh, uh, facilitate just staffing for events and stuff. So it's like the core group does the work, the extended group helps you facilitate the actual execution of the event, and you go from there. Um, when COVID hit, the only employee that I had all throughout COVID was my events manager, Amy, who you actually helped like been communicating with right. to help coordinate today. 
Um, Amy has been with me for about four and a bit years now. She has grown incredibly through this process as far as just what, when she started working with me to today. Um, the, her and I had a very honest conversation. I was like, listen, this thing has happened to the world. I can keep you employed for until I can't. Stay with me, you know, work with me, be patient with me. And if anything happens, I will be open and honest and transparent ahead of time. So that way, and we never had an issue. She's been with me the entire time through COVID. We've had always had something to do together. There's always been a project to, to work on. Um, and I was doing a lot of, basically I was by myself until about July of last year. And then I started to bring on a couple people here and there. I was definitely overworked. I was taking on weight. It felt like the beginning days. Like I was taking on way too much personally, but given the world, I had to, I couldn't rely too much on other people for no other reason than if things went backwards again, I didn't want to just start doing the layoffs. So exactly. I, I was able to hire someone on as a sous chef full-time in January. Um, and literally that first, what that person allowed me to do is to free up my energy to then focus on other projects simultaneously. So we didn't lose the business that we had already started without overspending on labor. And I allowed me to focus my energy in other places, but still be involved every single day. Now we've hired three more core bodies. And then again, we bring on an, on an as needed basis. Right. And honestly, like I'll keep building and growing, but I'm doing everything way slower than I used to. I don't like to be forced into any scenario or any relationship. If I feel like I have to, I have to do things. I immediately get uh, my, my backup a bit because at no point should anyone be forcing speed and growth on any of us now, given we've all seen how hard you can, things sure. can fall apart. So I'm a big fan, sorry. I'm a big fan of uh, like the incremental growth. Uh, coming out of COVID. Interesting. So one of the words you used earlier was brand partnerships. And, um, you know, obviously you rely a lot on that in your work as well. And you use social media very effectively. I mean, you're <laughs> on it in, in a big way and you have a great lo loyal following. And the food you prepare on social media always makes me hungry. So I feel like, oh, I need to order this. But um, how are you using social media to your advantage these days? And especially through the pandemic, because I think a lot of restaurants and chefs really needed to veer to social media even more during the pandemic. How have you been able to tap into the brand partnerships and the social media to get where you're, where you need to be? First off, that's so nice to hear that. I mean, thank you so much because I, it's something that we've accidentally, but also strategically did put, energy into the, the real focus was always just kind of be myself, I guess, on social media. Well, it's very Don't sound, it is very authentic. Yeah, like, personality shines through. Thank you. That, that means a lot because like, that was always the goal, you know, and I can be a person. I can be a person who's selling things. I can be a person who's not selling things and just cooking things. I can be a person who's just telling you about my life. I can tell you about what's frustrating me about the industry. And I think that's, what's always, um, been I guess what what brands have been attracted to with us what other people have been attracted to and, and to your point people within our industry being like you know how have you been able to curate it and they like really like I, I did consulting for a, a place in Montreal that just opened and really I told them like the, establishing a voice online um, isn't an accident like you need to take a lot of thought and it's like if you're just sounding like everybody else out there 
then it's really easy to get lost in the mix. So I felt mm-hmm. like for me, it was always very important to, to yes, let people know that I am selling a product that's for sale, but also not shove it down their throats uh, and let them just kind of engage with the brand however they want to. And I think from a brand partnership standpoint, um, that's always been really advantageous for us because then when a brand wants to work with us, they know they're not just getting, you know, a, a machine that just dials out the same kind of content all the time. But like, I really take my time to think about a, is this a brand or a product I want to work with? And then B, will they let me be myself while helping them sell their brand or product? It's funny. Cause like I grew up in advertising and it's like a very much still a very advertising approach, but now I see it as, you know, I am the medium or the conduit for how, how other brands are, are reaching an audience. So they have to be okay with who I am. Like you have to be okay with me or else, it's, there's going to be a, there's going to be a weird little awkwardness where like, well, you know, we love Matt's audience and connection with people, but we don't necessarily love his, his humor or whatever you want to call it. You're like, well, unfortunately you got one because of the other. So it's like, you have to take the full package or, or not, you know, and I've been so blessed. Like I've been so blessed. I can't, I can't say it any other way. Like I've had some amazing opportunities by my the biggest one to date is like I'm currently the the chef ambassador for Tostitos Canada and they they hired us on for a year and like like can you imagine just being like a kid who never thought that you know these brands that were just always in your fridge you know you arbitrarily use them every single day would then have an opportunity to be a part of their uh, their their development and how they they connect with people and I'm about to like. We're really, we're about a year away from my next big, big project, but we're almost able to start talking about it more. And really like that came up purely of someone saying, Matt, we'd love to work with you on something. Uh, And me saying, well, listen, like, I think I can provide more than just a voice to this project. And they actually brought me on as like an equity partner on it. And I'm so excited to be able to help the term. Yeah, like so, the term influencer gets thrown around all the time, and I kind of cringe when I when people call me a social influencer because I, I don't like I don't like the word at all. I think it's a stupid word. Um, I might be a person that has you know of influence that, but ultimately my job isn't to change your mind. Like I don't want to be that, just that. Right. My job, which is what influencing is, right, is like changing your mind on something. Um, my job is to show you how much fun that I'm having with something, and hopefully you want to join in on on the party. Like that's the goal. But now you can also look at it the other way around. And I think we're going to need to do a lot more of this where someone like myself can actually influence, forget about the consumer behavior. I can influence the brand and I can go back to the brand and be like, my experience and my connection with people can actually help influence how you grow your business down the road. And that's exactly what this next project is. And I'm so excited about it. Uh, I, I, I wish I could talk about it right now, but I can't yet, but we're really close to being able to talk about it. And the best part is it's like, whenever I've told someone close to me what I'm working on, all of them have said, this is exactly where you should be putting your energy in the future. Uh, This is, yeah, like this is perfectly created for you. Um, And that means a lot to me, right? Because like, you know, that, what are friends for? And these are friends that I've had way before I even started my own company. So to be able to like share something with like your, your inner circle and for them to all unanimously be like, yes, do this. This makes total sense. Um, so I'm really excited about that and how it can like integrate with what we've currently built. 
It's great how you've been able to bring your experience in the advertising and marketing area, which is where you started and kind of married the two with your love of food. And I think they, they really mesh nicely together from what I see. So, so well done on that. Um, Thank you. Earlier, you mentioned, you know, in, in some of your talks on social media and some of what you're presenting, you know, you talk sometimes about what's frustrating about the industry. And I think over the last years, the pandemic has shone a light on the industry and how it was really, you know, uh, adversely affected by the pandemic. So many things totally. came to light. And one of the things that came to light was that the industry was broken in some ways and needed to be fixed. There were a lot of hashtags out there about saving hospitality or not saving hospitality, but starting fresh. What's yep. your view on, on what the industry needs to improve on? How do you feel from what you've seen as a young person entering this mm -hmm. industry and working your way through it over the last decade? What would you like to see change about the industry to make it better? So first off, I want to say like that, there's a lot of responsibility in that question. So I, I like, I want to make sure that any, anyone that hears my answer, please know that this is just my perspective on it. And by no means am I prescribing what needs to happen. Uh, you know, I'm only want people to know kind of my, my opinion and my perspective based on what I've seen from all kind of angles. Um, I, I think the term broken is very important because I think we all realize, like, I, I think the, the public finally realized how small are the margins are in the food the industry. Margins, yeah. um, I, I think people were really shocked to hear that like a 2% profit margin was normal in a restaurant scenario. Um, and that is like, you know, going back to revenue streams, when you shut down your main cash flow, very hard to, to generate any income or revenue. So the other side of it too, is there's been a lot of talk about um, insuring, because we've seen a, a, a huge departure of industry uh, workers because of COVID and I don't blame them. And like, think about all the, the stops and starts we've had from between, okay, you can go back to work. Okay. We are on lockdown again. Okay. Like it feels like the roller coaster. The, yeah. Like it's almost like the politicians were making these decisions. None of them have worked in any sort of service industry whatsoever. And I actually think that in order to be a politician, you probably have to work in the service industry because being in politics should also be an extension of the service industry. You are doing things for other people all the time. And, and I, I would be like, like little things like, Oh, you know, you can open tomorrow. It's like, you know how long it takes the staff <laughs> hire, bring order, order, like get out of here. Like anyone with, with that's ever worked one shift in a restaurant at that table would be like, does no one see the flaw? So the first thing is I think, hospitality as a whole needs to do a much better job of being a, not a pirate industry, but one that is, is taken seriously by politicians and by the pop, general public. That, you know, if you're going to, if you're not going to question why your lawyer charges you for paper clips, don't question why we have to charge for napkin services because it is a cost of doing business. And as a result, these are why our margins are so low because we just assume them to be a, uh, arbitrary. It's like, of course, what? I got to pay for napkins. Why would I have to pay for napkins? Well, because you're using the napkin, you know, like, you know, you're using the napkin, just yeah. like your lawyer is going to charge you for using their paper clips. Like it is, you are literally, if someone just like, 
you know, I'm using the, the I love my lawyer actually. So <laughs> I have a great lawyer. I don't want to think I have a problem with lawyers. But I'm saying in, in industries where, where the professionalism is taken more seriously, they're taken more seriously because literally every line yeah, item of, of, of work is, is paper trailed. We don't, people have no clue what goes into what we do. They just assume they show up and the food is there and ready to serve. So number one, uh, as far as my perspective is concerned, is we need to establish ourselves as a legitimate industry for no other reason than we saw how many people we actually employ and hire uh, across the country. I think it was like 60% of, and I, I could be wrong with this percentage, but I'm almost positive. It's around 60% of COVID unemployment was hospitality sector. And it could even be more than that. Like, you know, it's a lot of people and hospitality isn't just restaurants, it's hotels, it's DJs, it's floral arrangement for people. It's, you know, if you were a company that did a lot of printing for restaurants, well, guess what? <laughs> they don't need that anymore. Yeah. So there's, yeah, everyone's impacted, right? So that's the first thing. Second thing, you know, that's, and it's kind of connected to that is we hear the concept of the livable wage, right? And I'm all in favor of everyone being paid uh, what they're deserved. Mm-hmm. What, where, where the conversation needs to be continued is that I'm still getting people trying to haggle me down to an $8 a person menu, you know, for a catering. And it's like, <laughs> how is that realistic? You know what I mean? Like, so I'm sorry, you, you want to say that everyone deserves a livable wage, but you don't want to, pay what it costs to actually facilitate this industry properly so you want that livable wage to happen but the the money that we generate to actually fulfill that livable wage is being constantly chiseled away at there's some problems here you know and i think uh, again I, i would love to see all forms of government come together and say I think we underestimated just how important this industry is to our, the fabric of our, of our, of our being. And we need to put a little bit more funding and resources into its development, just like we do into other public services. Um, And I'm not saying it's a public service, it's a private entity, but tourism is drastically impacted. um, And guess what? No one's, coming to toronto to see our costco like as i love costco <laughs> but no like it's the small independence that really took a beating you know so i think uh levels of government should really come together to say how can we better support you financially because at the end of the day that's the only support we need you don't you clearly don't know our industry you clearly don't know what decisions are good for our industry so how can we support you uh financially so that you can now regrow and come back out of covid uh a stronger more well-oiled machine, like a legitimate company. So there needs to be better understanding of what the industry is all about. And also there's a huge disconnect, as you say, in terms of prices, because everybody loves going to a restaurant, but you know, there's that price hesitancy when the menu prices go up and it's like, I've played a pasta for $25. You know, how can that be? You I have can to make look it at, at home for thing. 10. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're right. You know, none of these places should be making a profit. You're right. They should all be not-for-profit restaurants. Like, yeah. like but come on. And, and one of the biggest things that came out of this that I was shocked that people didn't know it, but then I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, sh- shit, like, sorry, not to swear, but like, how would they know this, right? Most people had no idea that the LCBO charged right. restaurants 
retail pricing models. Like there was no wholesale pricing on alcohol. Therefore, the 300% markup that most restaurants do, and it actually helps cover all the other losses that we've taken. So, and when I was telling somebody this, they were like, hold on a second. You guys don't get to buy direct from the, no. So many people were shocked by that when it came out through this pandemic, because most people, if you're not in the industry, don't realize that. You would have no idea. And it's like silly me for assuming, but you would have, yeah. It's so lots of, oh man, lots of discrepancies there. And I think education coming out of this is super key. Um, But then, you know, we need to do a lot better job as, as, as owners, as small business owners, being involved in that process, you know, and I, you know, if, if you've ever worked for me in the last 10 years, depending on when you worked for me, you'd either say I was the worst boss you ever had or the best boss you've ever had <laughs> because I, I learned the skill of managing humans by doing, and it's not something you can just say, well, I opened a restaurant, therefore I know how to foster and, facilitate proper growth and, and, and positive, uh, positive work environments. Like that takes years. So I think we all need to do a better job of that, making people that are, that did decide to stay in this industry or did decide to enter this industry to actually, dare I say, learn to love it. Like, <laughs> you know, right. is it that hard for you not to dread going to work every single day? Like, you know, so that's, that's where we have that responsibility though, as owners. Are you worried about people wanting to get into the industry after this past year? I mean, I'm worried that culinary school in the last two years has been completely online and there's been no practical resources. Like, so I think, and listen, like I've always been, and I do a lot of, it's, it's ironic because I do a lot of work with culinary schools, given I've never actually gone to culinary school, <laughs> I think. Um, and one of the things I always tell students is, listen, like you can use the base foundation knowledge that you learn here and apply it in a lot of different ways. You don't have to be a line cook. In fact, you'll know if you're, you're going to make it as a line cook or not within the first week of you doing it. So like you need to understand that. But I think, um, I think people need to understand, like get into this industry because they, they genuinely love food and feeding people. Like it, it, I think we need more of that passion back in the industry because if there was ever a year and a half or 60 month timeline to help suck the passion right out of it, it was the one we just had, you know? So, um, and that's, and I, and I speak for myself. There was many times where I was like, why am I doing this right now? <laughs> like, I remember when we first came back from COVID, it was, so it was May, mid-May 2020. And I was doing all of the ordering, receipt of orders, prep, packaging and deliveries for every single uh rib or meatball catering we did and i was just like what am i doing oh my goodness like i can't believe i'm back into this and it's like uh it didn't matter you know it was a temporary holding place yeah and you just had to power through it and you know luckily we were able to make it out through the other side so Matt, as a way to wrap up our interview, I mean, I could talk to you forever, but time, <laughs> time we have a limit. Um, can you maybe talk to me a little bit about some of the biggest lessons that you've learned through the last year? I mean, both from your business perspective, but also about yourself, because I think the pandemic has kind of 
given us pause to reflect on our lives and, you know, not just our work lives, our personal lives and to think, sure. you know, what have I learned about myself? What are, what have been your biggest lessons about yourself and your business? Well, that's an awesome question. In fact, I, you know, you were able to see it because you and I are on video right now, but to people who are listening, they just heard a, a, a random pause in my breath while I was talking. I'm a very emo- emotional person. I do take um, what I do very seriously and I do get caught up in my own emotions sometimes. And it's like, it can be very overwhelming when you do stop and think about all the different things you've had to endure. So um, I think we need to, the first thing I, that I did is I realized how human I really am. Um, I, I go to therapy once every couple of weeks for no other reason than to just vent and talk about all the things I'm doing and just to make sure that I'm not going to like just get all wound up and stress out. And I, I think there's such a, I was like, oh, he goes to therapy. Is he okay? No, I love going to therapy. It's like going to the gym. It's like, I do it just for like, you know, brain activity and like emotional Mm -hmm. activity and just to get things out because it's, it's necessary for me, not everybody, but for me. So that was a big thing. Um, You know, I love hanging out with my my puppy uh, and my girlfriend. And I think learning that there was more life than just working 20 hours a day, seven days a week, um, was the best thing to ever happen. I still love to work very, very hard, but when I'm not working, I am not working. If I'm off and you want to ask people are calling me, I'll, I will avoid your call. I will not respond to your email. I won't like, I'll text you. If you want to talk about anything else? Great. But if it's work related and I'm off, unless it's an emergency, which let's be honest, not many emergencies, <laughs> um, I, it can wait a day. And I think that was a huge thing was being okay with not being at everyone's beckoning call every second of every day, allowing that separation between this is when you get the work version of me and this is when you get the, the not work version of me. Um, so that was huge, you know, from a, from a, and that's the personal side, you know, because I think the personal side, way more important than the professional side. I needed to ensure that the person, me, the human was okay first in order to facilitate all the work changes that were going on. Because if it was the other way around, I would have been a mess. So um, that was first and foremost, the most important thing. You know, keep the relationships that I do have in my life super tight, really put energy into the people that have always been there for us or been there for me um, and, and doing that, you know. From a work side of things, being, being okay with saying no to people, like, you know, really being like, you know, I, I, no, I will not do that. <laughs> no, I will not work Sunday because Sunday is my day. So little things like that. Um, really taking the time to hire people, even though there's such a shortage right now in, in work, in the workforce and hospitality, that still doesn't mean that I want to ensure that I have people that are on my team that I, A, care about what they do, B, respect other people in the kitchen, C, respect, respect what I'm trying to build through a pandemic and, and see that I'm, I'm not here to be like a scary boss. I'm here to be like, you know, I'm part of the team and I want to make sure that we're all on the same kind of have the same goals because I need the team mentality to be, I try and build my work team, like a sports team, you know, like if that makes sense. Like we just need the all leaves, the parts. Okay? Just not the leaps. <laughs> uh, don't get me started. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but like, I, I need everyone to understand where your role is on the team and how everyone is, has a contribution to what the overall goal of the company is. And that's why, you know, I take a lot of pride in being able to hold on to staff 
for quite some time now, especially on the later, like I'd say the last five years, I've been really good at keeping people um, yes. on our team, you know, so I take a lot of pride in that. And I think that'll only be even more important as we go through all this stuff. The other thing being, you know, being okay with just, if something's not working off, you know, it's done. Don't hold on to projects that suck, uh, suck the energy out of you, suck the money out of you, suck the life out of you. And, you know, if, if it's not, I always say, I, you should never have to force a triangle into a square. You know, like it's, that's it, it, just something that I, I firmly believe in and I stand by that. So it's like always kind of going back to what are your core values? What are your beliefs? Does it work within that? No, it's done. Well, everything you've said, <clears throat> it sounds like a really healthy outlook in terms of a business <laughs> operator and, and a human beings, because at the end of the day, I think um, this industry is 24 seven for so many people and it really yeah. can't suck the life out of you. So it sounds like you've managed to, uh, to put that all into perspective. I've managed to at least be aware of it, if that makes sense. Like, I, I don't want anyone to think that I'm just, I've figured it out and I'm just like touching buttons now and the thing's on autopilot, not even a little bit. Right. Right. I've at least though, I am aware of the, the obstacles. I'm aware of my own obstacles. I'm aware of the industry obstacles. And at the very least, when I make decisions, I take those obstacles into consideration. Sometimes they're they're avoidable and sometimes they're unavoidable. And that's just the nature of it. Like I got really depressed actually when lockdown was lifted. Um, When it was lifted. When it was lifted, because really? I had gone, well, I had gone eight months of having a weekend. I had every Saturday <laughs> and every Sunday off for about right. eight months. Yeah. I was working Monday to Friday, and we had found a way to push all of our work into Monday to Friday. So I had weekends for the first time in 10 years. That's amazing. A Saturday and a Sunday off every week. And then I got really sad when lockdown got lifted. That's understandable. Yeah. I was, I was working every single Saturday and Sunday morning to night. While all the people I loved uh, were getting to spend time together, uh, I, I wasn't able to spend time with them. So that was really hard. And now you're probably thinking like, oh, like poor you, like this and that, not you, but anyone who's listening, they're like, this guy's just complaining now. He's complaining when he's not busy. He's playing with busy. It's like, no, I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to miss something that I really enjoyed. Like I'm allowed these things. That is the human side of me being a business owner. The business side it says, I need to take on this work right now. I'm going to take on this work right now. I'm going to do it because I absolutely love it or else I wouldn't do it at all. And I also now have a growing team and I need to give them the skills that hopefully I can parlay some of that responsibility to them over time. You know, so it was, it was a very like push and pull relationship I had with lockdown super uh, or the lift of lockdown, super happy. We were able to start operating again super happy we were able to start doing what we do as a company but then the human side of me kind of missed some of the luxuries i guess like a week like god forbid i god forbid i like weekends like everyone else you know like exactly (laughs) you know so very understandable that you would feel that way and and i know through the lockdown so many chefs i spoke with said that very thing that you know as much as they hated the pandemic they, liked, they loved having the ability to spend more time with their family and their kids. Right. And to enjoy time that they've never really had before. Thousand percent. Like there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. No. You know, there's no. nothing wrong with that at all because everyone's entitled to these things. 
And as a service and hospitality industry, we know full well what we're getting into when we start up. We know that we are working while other people are celebrating. That's, That's right. the very nature of it. You know, that's why so many restaurants have their, their holiday Christmas parties in January or February. <laughs> you know, not February, actually, because that's Valentine's Day. Not, I mean, I can't have Valentine's Day. January, it's usually in January, January, you know. So it's like we are the business of providing experiences for people that don't work in the business. And that is that is the reality. That doesn't mean as humans that we can't want that same thing once in a while. Like, of course. Know, I took three days. Yeah. I took three days off. I took a three day weekend. I took Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off this week my birthday for whatever it's like i don't know i used to feel obligated to always fill my gaps of time with more work i was just like why why am i why am i doing that yeah and then if the answer is just to stay busy then i'm like that's not an answer i think the pandemic has really opened the eyes for many people on that front well matt our time has run out and i really appreciated you making time in your in your schedule the day after your birthday (laughs) oh yeah feeling great Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm sorry if I went on a bit of a rant in certain areas, but I, you know, I do get, I, I am very uh, heated and emotional. Like I get very emotional about this stuff, mainly because I care so much, you know, I care a lot about this industry. I care a lot about food. Like food is just so paramount to like, you know, we're both Central. Italian Canadians. It's, it's part of my identity is like feeding people and making sure they're having a good time. So I care a lot and I get very emotional about defending this industry, defending my, you know, what we do, what other, like, I just, I care a lot. So anyways, I'm sorry if I got a little emotional. No, no apology necessary. Your enthusiasm is contagious. So thank you so much for being here. And uh, as we get back to some normal, um, keep that balance in your life. I'm sure you will and stay safe. You as well. All right, take care. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.